Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So we're going to pick up the pace a little bit this week. We only got through verse 1 last time. But we're going to make it all the way to verse 5 this time. So that's four hours if we go by last week. But no, our text this morning will be verses 2 to verse 5. Paul writes, as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Let's go to prayer this morning before we walk our way through our text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again pray that you would use your word to speak to us this morning. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning because we know that nothing of value is done here outside of his work in our heart as he takes the word of God, illuminates it, applies it to us, and then convinces of us that truth as he molds our character and changes our minds. And so this morning we just pray that as we go through this text that we will take the truths of these and put them close to our heart and that we might live in obedience and in light of them, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we started through the book of Thessalonians last two weeks ago. And as we started the book of Thessalonians, we, we were reminded again that every single word of Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for uh, reproof, for instruction in righteousness. And so there's a tendency we always have when we start to read a book is that we, we want to get through the beginning to get to the good stuff. And we kind of forget that actually God has inspired all of Scripture. And so what is in the readings even in Scripture are there for our benefit and our instruction and are profitable. And so last week we recognized that this book that is being written here, the book of Thessalonians, is actually a letter. It is a letter that is being addressed to a particu- from a particular person to a particular audience with a particular message. And we talked last week about this having a triple A beginning. He first of all gives us the author, he tells us who he's addressing, and then he gives the address to that, those people who are receiving the book. And in giving this introduction, he gives us the information about this letter and, and with some instruction and some theology as he takes what we would say is a standard Greco-Roman introduction and he infuses it with Christian meaning. And so last week we saw the work of God's grace. We saw the ministers of grace, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. 
the men who would come to mind as the people would read this letter and as they would begin their letter, unlike ours where we signed it at the, at the end, they, they signed it at the beginning. So they knew who was writing to them and they knew that it was worthwhile to read this letter. And we saw what kind of men they were as they, these men were involved in the founding of the church at Thessalonica. And then we saw that this, they, this church here was the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where they existed. They were saved. They were in Christ. And their identity was there. They had received the grace that was extended to them. And then Paul said to them, grace to you in peace. He wasn't asking for, to give them something they didn't have, but he was saying, I want you to experience more the grace of God. You already have the grace of God. I want you to have it even in greater amounts. And I want you to experience the peace of God in your life. And so Paul opens this letter and he Christianizes it. And he says, listen, I just don't want you to have peace and I just don't want you to have prosperity but I want you to have peace and prosperity with God and I want you to spiritually flourish as God extends his grace to you and so we said that this is what Paul wants for you as you read this book that you would experience the grace of God that you too as you read this book will ultimately experience the grace of God as you absorb the truths and as you are obedient to what it says then God's grace will be extended in your life and you will experience that peace in your soul because you are in right relationship with God. Well, as Paul continues this letter then, he continues what we would say in a normal way. And in, 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 as we look at ancient letters, many of the Greco-Roman letters had an, a next section of their letters where they would begin with a, with a section of thanksgiving. Now, sometimes that thanksgiving was given to Roman gods and they would give, give thanks to these gods and they would, they would say good things about them. Sometimes there was a, a more, uh, there was a, a, a place what they called an exordium, a section uh, of short length where they would give thanks to their audience and they would give praise on them and it's almost like in reestablishing a relationship with them, they would want to give say good things about them so that they would be happy to listen to what they had to say in the letter. And it was kind of like a positive thing on their mutual relationship. But as per usual, <clears throat> Paul takes what is secular and he Christianizes it again. And again, he moves it towards his purposes as he writes the book. And so he gives this uh, section of thanksgiving for the Thessalonians, which he does in all of his letters except for Galatians. He, he always starts after his greeting with a section, I, I give thanks for you. And, and then he gives reasons why. But as Paul does this, as he gives this section of thanksgiving, and there's some debate whether it runs through to verse 5 or to verse 10. We're going to take it all the way to verse 10. Paul begins to raise up all of the subjects that he is actually going to preach on in this book. In other words, he's going to touch on the topics that are here. He's going to talk about many of the things that he is grateful for, for what he sees in them. He will now address in the rest of the book. And so 
in this section, he kind of lays down what we would call a template as to what he will teach on in this book. And so he is praying about the very things he's about to write in this book. So some, some other things as we look at verse 2, Paul says, we give thanks, we give thanks. Now, in our English translation, that comes out as three words. In, in the Greek, it's just one, one word, just one word that covers those three words, eucharisto. Now, if you're listening carefully, that sounds very, very familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like the word what? Eucharist, eucharist. Now, this term, of course, we has a lot of baggage with it. We have a lot of churches that use this word that comes and it's used for often for uh, in liturgical churches and churches that are, are in false churches for the mass. But when Paul is using this word, this word is just really a, another word for, get, for uh, literally for giving thanks. There's no baggage to it yet. And he's simply saying, we give thanks. In other words, he says, we are giving thanks for you. In fact, this word is, is often used. We often use it in the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, having what I have received and having given thanks, he took the bread and having given thanks, he took it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He gave thanks. He, he gave he, he gave gratitude for the bread. He gave thanks. And so we would say that the Lord's Supper is a celebration of thanksgiving. This is what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, which we will do later on this morning. And so on a more, and just at a very simple level, it's a concept of simply giving thanks. It's giving thanks, giving honor, or giving rightful praise to the source of good gifts. And so this is what Paul starts with. He says, we give thanks. Now you'll notice this. Unlike the secular writers who would butter up his audience, Paul, when he starts to give thanks, is actually not congratulating them. He's actually not ingratiating them, himself to them. He's not actually saying anything about them at all. Notice this. What does he give thanks? What is the direction of his thanks? We give thanks to who? To God. He's not thanking the Thessalonians. He's not making much about them. But the direction of his thanksgiving is towards God. And so he points to the ultimate source of blessing, the ultimate sourcing source of everything that has taken place in the Thessalonians' life, and that is God. And that's the idea that controls this idea of thanksgiving goes from verse 2 to verse 10. And Paul, as we will see, is grateful for what God has done in their life, what he has done in the work of salvation in their lives. And so Paul says, we, we give thanks always. This thanksgiving is not sporadic, it's not occasional, but it is regular and repeated. He says, we give thanks always. It suggests that they were constantly on their mind. And it's, you can almost see as Paul and his companions, as they, are, as they are gathering together or individually, every time that the, the, the Thessalonians came to their minds and every time they pictured their faces, they begin to give thanks. As, the, as those memories come into their mind, 
their first response then is to have gratitude towards God. And then he says, for all of you, for all of you. Now, you'll notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I give thanks to, for the super Christians among you. He doesn't say, I give thanks for those who are obedient. He doesn't say, I'm thankful for the mature believer. He doesn't say, I'm thankful for the elders. He doesn't say, I'm thankful for the deacons. He doesn't say, I'm really thankful to the Sunday school teachers. He actually says, I give thanks for what? All of you. All of you. All of you without exception is the idea. There's a universality to this thanksgiving. And yet, when you think about the Corinthian church, and dare I say that we might be a little bit similar to to the Thessalonian church, we recognize that they're not perfect. They're not perfect. In fact, he says in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, as we might, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and what? And may complete what is lacking in your faith. This church wasn't fully orbed. It wasn't fully where it needed to be. In fact, He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we know it wasn't a perfect congregation because he says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. There were those who were in disobedience, those who were causing trouble, and he says, you need to what? Admonish them. Encourage the faint-hearted. There are those who just need encouragement because every time... Difficulty comes, they get discouraged. Help the weak, right? Be patient with everyone. So this church wasn't perfect. And yet Paul says, we give thanks for what? All of you, all of you without exception. In other words, Paul was recognizing God's work in the Thessalonian church. And he was giving thanks because for every believer that sat in the church, there was a work of Christ that had been done in their life. And Paul wasn't thanking God for the Thessalonians' faithfulness, but for God's faithfulness. He was pointing to God and he says, there's always something to be given thanks for other believers Because there is always a work of Christ that has been done and is being done in their life. And we need to praise God for that. The question is, do we actually do that? Do we actually, are we we where God is? Are we, we where Paul is, where we recognize God's working and we rejoice? Not Not in the people we get along with the best. Not in those who walk like us and talk like us. But for every single one in the church, do we give thanks to God because we recognize that if they're a believer, God is working in them. Paul says, we give thanks. Every time we, they come to mind, our natural response is to, to respond in gratitude.
Well, then Paul moves on from verse 3, from verse 2, I'm sorry, to verse 3. And he really now gives us the content of his thanksgiving. He's just said, I, 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 I give thanks for you. And, and he says, every time we pray, and the idea here is, this is my means by which I give thanks to you, for you. In other words, I express my thanksgiving in prayer. I do it constantly, bearing in mind what you do. He says, when every time I pray, when, when, when you come to mind, this is what I do. I give thanks for you. So here's the content in verse 3. <coughs> and he gives us, really, we, we could say, we talked about God's grace that was extended to them in last week. We could say, now we can say, here are three evidences or three characteristics of God's, of receiving God's grace or God's grace at work in their life. There are three characteristics of God's saving work that is done in their life. Number one, we see spirit-produced fruit. We see fruit that is produced in their life. Second of all, the second work, part of God's work is God's supernatural choosing of them. And thirdly, we see that God's work of salvation is brought about by the faithful preaching of the gospel. So number one, we, we look first of all and we will see the supernatural fruit produced as a result of God's saving work. Now as he looks at this, uh, as, we, as we look at this, at this verse, it says, constantly bearing in your mind your work of faith and labor of love. If you will look at the ESV, it says, remembering before God and our Father your work of labor. And I think that phrase that is actually placed down farther at the end of uh, verse 3 is actually supposed to be up at the beginning, in the presence of God and our Father. So he says, I am constantly remembering in the presence of God. In other words, when I come in prayer, that's exactly where I go. I go to the throne room, I go to God's presence, and I give thanks for you. And he says, I am constantly bearing in mind your work of labor, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. And so he breaks it down into these three evidences. These things are now what we would say being displayed in the life of the Thessalonians. They are the ones who now see this. And Paul and his companions can now see this because these things are being expressed in a way that can be seen to others. This is how their salvation is being manifested. This is how it's being demonstrated. There, and this is how it is being evidenced. And there's a practical, concrete expression of their salvation, of God's work in their life. He says there is, first of all, faith, love, and hope. Now, these are really the foundational virtues of the Christian life. These, these, are, these are the virtues that, that are right at the very base of the Christian life. But these virtues that sometimes seem so abstract and they seem so far out there and they seem like they're, they're just ideas are actually here expressed very, in a very practical way. 
And in salvation and in true Christianity and true faith, virtues are not just abstract, but they become practical in our lives and they are expressed practically in our lives. And so we see this visible expression, work, labor, and steadfastness. There's a practical expression. Now what I want you to notice as, as you go through this, there are three practical expressions, work, labor, and steadfastness. And each one of them is modified by a noun that gives you the source of that expression. So when we look, we see the visible expression of work. There's a noun beside it of source. In other words, he says, you have a work of what? Faith. In other words, you have work that you are doing, deeds that you are doing that are produced by what? Faith. That's the source of the work. In other words, there would be no works without faith. There would be no labor of love without love. In other words, that that is what motivates this labor. And there would be no steadfastness without hope. Hope is the source of being able to be steadfast. And so he labels, he, he puts these together and he says, here's these works that are sourced. Now there's one other little nugget that I want to give us on this. I want you to look at the order that he puts these in. Did these virtues look familiar to you from somewhere else? If you were to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says this, beginning in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Now listen to this, but now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now you notice our passage says what? Faith, love, hope. Here he says what? Faith, hope, love. Paul actually moves these virtues around to fit the context of what he's trying to teach. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he is trying to tell you that the most important virtue is love because it is the one that is eternal. When you get to heaven, your faith and hope will be realized. You will see Christ face to face. You will not be looking forward to a time of Christ's return. You will not be looking for uh, um, having to have faith that this will take place because it will already be done. But here in 1 Thessalonians, he changes the order. And so the question is, why does he change the order? Well, he changes the order to fit the context because today he's talking about salvation and the Christian experience in salvation. In other words, you begin your Christian life and you walk by what? Faith. Faith. And out of faith, that faith produces love, a love that labors. 
as you grow, as your faith in Christ is, the natural expression is love, and ultimately you hang on to these and are faithful in these because you have what? Hope. Because you are, you are resting in that hope. And so Paul has moved these virtues here to express how we experience them in salvation. We come in faith, we labor in love, and we stay steadfast because of hope. Interesting, isn't it? I thought it was. All right. So let's examine these just a little bit deeper. He says, your work of faith, your work of faith, really the work of a new heart, we would say, because God has saved them. <coughs> work refers to deeds, just general deeds. Um, it doesn't, so Paul doesn't say what kind of deeds he's talking about. He just says, your work of faith. In other words, there, is, there are deeds that you perform. In other words, you have trusted in the gospel message. Uh, that trust now is what? Producing work. In other words, saving faith comes al- is, is by faith alone, but it doesn't come alone. All true faith produces works. And so it is a natural result. It produces good deeds. And that's why we often quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which we his before, beforehand ordained that we should what? Walk in them. And the idea there isn't that we should or we could, but that we will. In other words, he saved you to do good works. That's exactly what you do. That's what true living faith does. There's a natural response. It's just like a mother's bear's natural response is to protect her cub. For the believer, the natural response of true faith is actually to do good works is to be obedient to Lord Jesus Christ and do all the things that are called for in the Christian life. Again, this, this is not a new truth. This was given to us in James chapter 2. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, for, and then verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. In other words, works do not save you. You cannot work yourself to God. You cannot earn his favor, but always the result of having God's favor is actually working. And so those will be the natural things that we will do. Titus tells us that we are, should be what? Zealous for what? Good deeds. Good deeds for these works. And so we could say there's no doubt about the Thessalonians' face, faith because this is exactly what was evident to Paul and to Silvanus and to Timothy. They look back and they said, there are works that are produced from faith that would not be there, and only true faith could produce these deeds. Faith produces works, not vice versa. 
Faith produces work, not vice versa. Well, out of, that, out of those works, out of that labor, out of that faith, comes love. A labor and a labor of love. Another, another thing that is produced in them by their salvation, a labor of love. Labor has the idea of the cost of exertion, fatigue, exhaustion that comes from work. And the idea here is, is the idea of extraordinary effort expended. It comes at personal cost. And therefore, coupled with the product of love, therefore the laborer is the wearisome toil by which love expends itself. It comes from a love, and it comes from a love for one another. And here he's speaking here of love for the brethren. And we know that the love of brethren can only be produced by loving God first. But his emphasis here is, I can see your love for one another. In other words, I can't always see your love for God. I can't, I can't measure your heart. But what I can measure is, if you love God, you will express it by love for the brethren. That is just a natural outflow of what will take place. And he says, you will labor in love. So the concern is for the object of love does not stop with ordinary effort, but goes the second mile and even beyond for the sake of another. And the idea here is, had there been no love, they would not have persisted in carrying out this hard and difficult activities that they perform for one another. Now, sometimes labor of love can express itself in financial, but that's not the emphasis here. Labor, labor here is more of a spiritual service, either beneficial effects to help the sick and the hungry or intense devotion of spreading the gospel. But whatever it is, is an expression of doing what is good for one another. It's not a social construct, but it's something that is produced by God. And always it comes with self-sacrifice. True Christian love will always come with self-sacrifice. It cannot be expressed outside of that. Of course, the supreme example of love is God the Father, right? We talked about that when we were in 1 John chapter 4, where, where we see God's love Express for us. First John chapter 4, verse 9 to 11. <coughs> but this love, but this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that he might live, we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to uh, love one another, right? And again, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent. Self-sacrificing love of God to save us. And this love, again, is not a merely emotional response. It's not prompted by the desirability of, of the object or, or someone or affinity for it. It's not controlled by emotions, though they do come, but controlled by the will. 
And so if God loves us in this way that he sent his son, that Jesus was willing to come, how much more should we love one another? And so how much more must our love reflect God's love? And so Paul says, I give thanks for you because I see not only your work of faith, but I see your labor of love, how you go the extra mile for one another to meet one another's needs, to do what is right for one another. Not what's best for you, but is best for one another. And he says that can only be produced by those who are what? Truly born again. True faith produces true love. This love is God taught. And then Paul says, here's a third reason that we give thanks for you. This is because of the the, the spiritual fruit that has been produced in you. He says, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I give thanks for you because there is your steadfastness. In other words, we've we've been slowly growing in intensity here, right? We started with deeds, works that we do. We talked about labor that was difficult, labor of love. And now he said steadfastness. You know, it's not just a matter of doing those deeds and, and continuing, but now we, we, and laboring hard, but now we don't stop laboring. We keep under it. The, the idea here is, is endurance, right? Where, where this becomes the natural response for us, where we, we don't run out from under trials. We don't run out from under trouble. We don't under, run away from, from difficulty or for difficult obedience, but we, re- we may remain faithful underneath and obedient, and we don't desert the faith. We don't desert what God has done. It, it, we could say that this steadfastness is an inner quality which increases each time a trial is patiently and trustingly endured. Reminded of James, right? where he talks about, and let endurance have its perfect result. In other words, you get under trials and it's like you are continually, your natural response is to turn to God. And the more you turn to God and the more you trust God and the more you hope, he says, the stronger you get. And I like that word endurance or here because the idea is, is like building a muscle. Every time that you, you strain your muscles, at least when you were younger or when I was younger, your muscles got bigger and stronger, right? And so after you were done exercising and after a while, right, you would look down and you'd go like, whoa. Well, I never did, but some do. And, but there was, what was left was endurance. There was muscle and there was muscle memory and there was strength there and it was ready to go. And he said, for the believer, we're steadfast. We stay underneath all of it. We don't give up on the faith. When difficulty comes, we don't get discouraged and we don't leave. For the Thessalonians, we remember they were under persecution. They They came to faith under fire. And Paul says, you were steadfast. You didn't give up. You didn't, you didn't just cave in. You didn't wander from the faith. He says, you didn't do this because you had hope, hope. And he says, you had hope, not just some vain hope, some I wish hope, 
But you had faith, what, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You had faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope here transcends fear, mere human wishful anticipation and rests confidently in the consummation of the redemption that Scripture says will certainly occur when Christ returns. Now, it's interesting that this term here, Lord Jesus Christ, another nugget, is never used in the Gospels. Did you know that? This full title is never used in the gospel. It is only used of the transcended Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is talking about the transcended, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who is returning. And so when, he, when we look at this, then we know that Paul is saying, listen, their hope, the reason they were steadfast because they had hope because they were looking forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 10, or, and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the what? Wrath to come. That's the believer's hope. He says it right there. We are looking forward. We have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, waiting. It says in, in 1 Timothy 1.1, waiting for the certain coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it is Christ Jesus who are is our what? Hope. And so Paul says, there's a steadfastness here that is produced by in the Lord Jesus Christ because there is the hope of his return and him coming and making all things right. And he says, this, this can only produce, this hope can only be in those whom God has saved. And so Paul says, I give thanks for all of you because I see the manifestations, the practical manifestations. You are doing deeds of righteousness. You are laboring in love and you are steadfast in your hope and not giving up in the Christian faith. And he says, this can only be produced by true genuine work of God of grace in your life. And so we would say this. True Christianity will not remain abstract in your life. If, if all you know are the virtues and all you know is, is words and it has never actually become practical in your life, then you have to look back and say, am I actually saved? Has there been a work of grace in my life? Or am I just spouting creeds and words without anything that's taken place? Paul says, I give thanks to them because guess what? I know they're saved because I, it is evident in the way that they live. That's point number one. Number two, we look at the work of God's grace in our life, and we, say, we see that it is actually a work of divine love in choosing. We saw the spiritual fruit is produced. Now we see it is a true work of grace as a result of God's loving choice. God's loving choice. <coughs> Paul begins, he says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. 
Now, knowing it has the idea of recognizing or recalling or perceiving, seeing. And Paul says, we know this. We know that God has saved you. We, we're, we're certain of it. This isn't something that we're questioning at all. Beloved brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And so they, are, they have come to a confirmed conclusion that they're saved. He says, knowing his choice of you. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, here's the most, not a, it, it, he says, it's not a result of the Thessalonians getting their act together. They're not saved because somehow they chose God and somehow they, they somehow made a good choice. Rather, he says, the word choice here means has the idea of to pick out or to choose someone. To pick out or choose one. And it has the basic idea of verbal selection. To speak out has the idea of a crowd and, and, and making a choice out of it. Now, you probably went to school or you went to a youth group and we had those, those times, right, where you pick teens. And so there was a verbal selection that took place. And you were hoping... You weren't the last one picked, and you were hoping to get on the friend with your team, right? Your, your, the team with your friends. And Paul is saying here that God has made a selection. He has made a verbal selection of some. He has chosen them for himself. Now, it's interesting that this word is found seven times in the New Testament, five times used by the, by the Apostle Paul, and every time this word for choose or choice is used it is used of a divine choice not a human choice every time a divine choice and so this is a special theological term that refers only to divine selection he says I um, and, and so th this is used, we, we can look at various verses, Acts chapter 9, we see Paul. Paul is on the road to Damascus, he's breathing down the necks of, of believers, he wants to persecute them, he wants to kill them, he's struck down by the Lord and he's converted. And a little bit later in that chapter, chapter 9 verse 15, the Lord says to Ananias, go for he is what? A chosen instrument of mine. In other words, I might made a divine choice to make Paul my instrument. I'm the one who saved him because I had a purpose for him. Paul was not seeking God. Paul wanted nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew exactly who Jesus Christ claimed to be and he rejected it. And yet God struck him down. And God says, guess what? I chose, he's my chosen instrument. This is not unfamiliar in scripture. This is certainly a term that we see often. First Peter chapter one, verse one, speaking to the churches that he is writing to who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. 
This is consistent with Scripture. And we could, we, we, could go, we could spend the next half an hour going through Scriptures that have this concept. But Paul did not choose God. God chose Paul. Paul wanted nothing to do in and of his own flesh. Now, this doctrine is often seen as tyrannical, unfair, harsh, mean. It causes many people to recoil. How can you worship a God who would do this? But notice, Paul, it's almost as if Paul anticipates what's going to take place. Or it's like he, he knows what people are going to respond and how they're going to think. Notice in verse 4, right in the middle of this verse, he does something that is unusual. He breaks into what we call direct address. He's been writing, and now he directly speaks to the audience. And when he does that, he's making a point for emphasis. And right in the middle of the verse, he says this, Knowing, brethren, beloved Brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Paul could have simply said, knowing his choice of you, but he doesn't. He says, brethren, beloved, what? By God. Inserts it right in the middle. Right in the middle. It's like a beacon sign. Pay attention. This is based, what? Brethren, what? In the love of God. And so God describes this work of God, this originating act of God, as something based in his love. And what he says, God saved you, Thessalonians. He's the one who chose you. You didn't chose him. He chose you. And just before you go too far and you get too excited about it, and just before you start to get angry about it and think, well, well actually, no, I did, Paul says, listen, this is not a harsh doctrine. It is actually inseparable from the love of God. It is inseparable from the love of God. Now notice this. He calls them brethren, which in and of itself is unique. Paul is a Jew, right? The only people that he would call brethren are what? Other Jews. Certainly not those dirty dog Gentiles. Yet here Paul says to the, Corinth, to the Thessalonian church, and this is a church that is primarily Gentile at this point, brethren, kinsmen, you are now what? Because of God's election, you are now in the family of God and now you are family members with me in the body of Christ. You've been adopted. You've been selected. He says, you, have, you are brethren beloved by God. This word beloved is in the perfect passive, denotes a love which existed in the past but continues into the presence with unabated force. In other words, it has the idea, 
uh, an act that results in a state. Another way of saying that is this. The act that results in a state being, a state of being, and that is, and that act is done what results in a state of belovedness. In other words, there's an act done as a result of the act, a state exists, and because God loved you, you are now sitting in a state of what? Being loved. You are now beloved by God, and it continues. You continue in that state. He started, he chose you, you now exist in a state of being loved by God. And he says, the act that caused you to be beloved is God's election. It was an act of love by God as he elected. It is a, as one commentator says, it is an act, a, a special act of unique, extraordinary, exceptional love by God to have chosen these Thessalonians. Paul said, it's very clear. And you know what's amazing a little bit about this? How old is this church? How old is this church? We figure as he writes this church, to this church, it's about six months old. It's about six months old. And you know what? Paul gives no other explanation of this phrase at all. None. He just simply gives it to them. And guess what? The Thessalonians get it. They get it. They don't argue with it. They don't say it cannot be. They simply accept it. And that's what's so amazing is that the truth of God's word under the Holy Spirit should just fill us with, with, with a recognition of what God says. Now I know it's sometimes difficult in our day and sometimes it's, it's hard and sometimes it causes debate and sometimes it causes friction. And sometimes we, we wrestle with, with our limited human ability to understand an infinite God and, we want, and we, want, we want to try to figure it all out. And yet at the end of the day, we simply have to bow to this and we ha simply have to bow to God. And as again, one writer said, we must embrace this doctrine as essential because it is intrinsically tied to God's love. It's intrinsically tied to God's love. Election isn't something that keeps people from, you know, from going to, to heaven and, and puts people to hell. It is a rescuing operation by God that keeps people who were going to hell from going to, from, from going to hell. It is a rescue operation that is necessary because man on his own will not make the first move to God. He always rejects God's truth. It is actually an act of mercy built on God's eternal purposes, on his righteousness and his justice and his love to save those, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, that were his before the foundation of the world.
I want you, I want you to sink, I want this to sink in. You are here this morning. You are sitting here this morning as the recipients of God's grace because of an act of love. You are here because of an act of love of God towards you. No other reason. No other reason. You are here this morning because of an unconditional act of love of God placed upon you. How can we not respond with Paul and give thanks? How can we not give praise to God? And how can we not give praise for one another as we see one another because of God's work in your life? Praise, all praise goes to him. Well, the third thing I want us to see, not only do we see the, the fruits of the Spirit, not only do we see an act of God's love, loving choice, but we see that the gospel, the faithful preaching of the gospel brings about this work. When God saves, it is brought about by the faithful preaching of the word of God. Paul says, for our gospel, and again, when he says our gospel, he's not saying we made it up, this is our gospel, but he's saying the gospel that was entrusted to us, the gospel that we're about to bring to you, did not come to you, did not come in to you in word only. In other words, it didn't just come to you in word, but it did certainly come in word. Okay, we want to make sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, there needed to be a proclamation of the gospel. We don't want to start down that road, right? Preach the gospel, use words if you must. No. Paul's gospel did not come in deed only. Right? We know what happens to perfect people who live a perfect life. The only man that did that ended up on the cross. Your perfect life will save no one. Your perfect life will save no one. The gospel must be preached. And so we don't want to say, well, it didn't come in word only. Oh, so that's not important. No, actually, the content of the gospel is essential. This is what we call the external call of the gospel. First Corinthians talks about that. Where, where, where to what? To the Greeks, foolishness. To the Jews, an offense. But what? To the called is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so we know that the gospel must go forth. Faith cometh by hearing and what? Hearing by the word of God. How can they hear without a what? A preacher. The, word of, the gospel actually has to be preached and you actually have to have enough content for people to be able to be saved. It's the foolishness of the gospel, that foolishness of the gospel preached that saves. And so here he personifies the gospel as coming. It didn't come only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit in full conviction. He says, in contrast to just word, guess what? The gospel came and it came in supernatural power. An inherent power residing in something is the word here, dumas, 
dunamis. It signifies that the words that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy spoke were not merely human words, but were divinely energized. Paul reminds the Romans of the same truth, writing that he was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first, to the Greek, and also to the Greek. So this goes beyond the power of the missionaries. The missionaries can give a good speech. They can give the gospel, but that's not enough unless it is empowered by God. It is God who had the power to break down the resistance of the Thessalonians. It was God who had the power to save them. And he says, it came in power in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, the, is again the agent of regeneration. And he's the one who worked in the Thessalonians' hearts and brought them to salvation. He's the one that made them new. He who, he's the one who brings new life to sinners. And Paul says, we're not responsible for what's taking place in your life. The Holy Spirit is the one who is responsible. So he says, the, the gospel that we preach, we preached it in the Holy Spirit, we preached it with power, and then he says, in full conviction, or full assurance is the word. In other words, when we came to you, we were convinced of the gospel that we gave you. We came and we fully gave it to you. Not only did it work in your life and convict you, but we came with it with no doubt in the power of the gospel. It is the power to save, and so we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul says, we came preaching the gospel, a gospel that has power to save, that is infused by the Holy Spirit in full convictions, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In other words, you know who we were. When we came, we weren't false teachers. We weren't those who were, were praying on the flock. We came to you. You know who we were. You know our character. You know the, that the gospel that we gave came in power. You know how we lived among you. You know how we performed. You know our character. You know our conduct. You know our message. And there's a sense in which Paul says, listen, you know the character of us and it can't be separated from the message we bring. And there's a sense in which we could say, there's an application here that guess what? God uses his word and he uses the gospel for those who are what? Walking in the power of the spirit, who are empowered by him and full conviction of the truth. And when the gospel goes forth from people like this, it is effective and God uses it. And so Paul says, listen, you, as we preach, you believed. You now have come to faith. You know who we were. You know how God has worked in your life. And so Paul says, listen, we know that a supernatural, we give thanks to God and we, we, we constantly in the presence of God pray for you and give thanks for you because we have seen the supernatural work of God in your life, how he has produce spiritual fruit and how those virtues are not abstract in your life, but demonstrated through your work, through your labor, through your love and your hope.
He says, we recognize that God's worked in you because he's the one who chose you. It is his work. It is his choosing. It's his supernatural love that he placed upon you that you are beloved. And he says, you responded to the gospel. It came not by some imaginary gospel, not by some supernatural vision, but by the preaching of the word of God, the true preaching of the word of God, the moving of the spirit, and you responded in salvation. And so Paul says, I give thanks. And so we too should look at what God's work has been taking place in the Thessalonian church and we should give thanks to God. But we too can look at our own church and we can look at our own selves and we should be able to say, I give thanks to God. I see what he's done in me. I've seen what he's done in the people in the church. And I too turn to him and see his work in salvation and say, all glory and honor goes to him. He's the one who should receive glory. He's the one who should receive thanksgiving. He's the one who deserves all credit for salvation. And we too should be filled with praise and glory and honor to his name. He deserves it all. And there may be some this morning that look at this and they say, guess what? None of that seems to be me. I see none of those virtues. I see none of those things working in my life. And at this point then we simply say, call out to God. Cry out to him. Ask him to grant you repentance that you don't have. Ask him to break down and give you a new heart so that you too might see him. Because God's choice of you does not negate the fact that you too must come in faith and repentance. You too must respond to the message of the gospel just like the Thessalonians do. And in that, there is salvation. And so this morning, if you've never done that, as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, I call on you, repent while there is still time. Turn to him that you may be found. And then you too might experience and the glories of a transformed life by the grace of God. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you again as we looked at the picture of your working in the Thessalonians' life, bringing them to salvation. And Paul's gratitude as he recognized that you deserve all glory and honor and praise. And we too this morning pray that you would give us a heart of gratitude and that we would again worship you for all that you are and for all that you have accomplished in our lives by the power of your grace. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.